It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. You know, one of the most well-known theologians in the world today is Dr. Timothy Keller. He's a founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York and author of several books. And many people who've read my book know that he's been a tremendous influence in my spiritual and intellectual journey. In fact, the very tagline of this podcast, Truth and Love, came from me knowing Timothy Keller. That's where it came from. He's been a guest on Lighthouse Faith Podcast a few times, but even though he's the subject of this podcast, he's actually not not on today. As many of his followers know, he's battling pancreatic cancer. He's still with us, but he needs our prayers. So it's a good time to have on the author of the first real biography of Timothy Keller, and it's a bit different because it's not, it's really more about the people who influenced him. Colin Hansen is the vice president of content and editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. It's a ministry that Tim Keller founded now that he's retired from being a senior pastor. And Colin's book is called Tim Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. And Colin joins me now. Welcome. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Lauren. Thank you. You know, I was actually a little bit worried when I got that book on, um, you know, in the mail. And I'm thinking, this is the kind of thing that's written after a person is no longer with us. Um, So why write this now? Well, I've been thinking, Lauren, about this book and asking other people, especially in New York, to write it for about 10 years, Um, because there's anybody can speculate after the fact when somebody's gone about what were you thinking about this? Who did you learn that from? Where did Mm -hmm. you get that idea? How did that work out in your head? There's nothing that can compare to actually talking with the subject himself. And I thought, especially when Tim got that pancreatic cancer diagnosis back in 2020, that we had to hear from him directly. We had to have a project where we could ask him those questions. We could say, hmm, tell me what that thought process was. What were you were you excited to start that church in new york city um what did you learn in hopewell virginia what was kathy's influence on your life and so that was that was why we decided to do it at that time and i'm just glad that he agreed to agreed to do the interviews and to encourage others to talk with me as well i mean i'm not through the book yet but i'm already starting to oh my goodness now i have to get that book and that book and he's already been in a great influence on the things that i've done in fact the book I, i i joked to him that there should be a watermark of TK on every book, every page of my book, because that's basically um, who who kind of is behind this book. But you know, he's not a person who craves attention. And I remember right. getting on the subway down here, you know, at Rock Center. I mean, this is a subway; it's New York subway. And here's Tim Keller standing on the platform waiting for a subway to go, you know, to Roosevelt <laughs> Island. And it's like, Tim, oh my goodness, you're you're here. I mean, this is the kind of person he is, even though he's just this incredible genius. Yeah, in fact, that's the reason why I started the book with a quote from Kathy, his wife. It was the first 10,000 people he sees, nobody knows who he is. Now, that's more true in New York City than it is anywhere (laughs) else, but it's also just the way they understand themselves. At some level, they're still the old marching band drum major, 
trumpet player in Tim Keller and the self-described frumpy newspaper editor in Kathy Keller. They just don't really think of themselves as as famous, which is one reason why in approaching this book, I knew that Tim would not love talking about himself. He would not love the publicity that would come from this but he would love the opportunity to talk about other people. And if you think about it, Lauren, that just makes sense because he's somebody who spent his entire adult life talking about another person, namely Jesus as a preacher. Yeah. Um, but just when you're, when you're talking with him, as you know, he just loves to tell you what he's learning, how he's developing, who he got that idea from. It's just his natural mode of discourse. He's always deflecting to other people. In fact, a lot of people don't think he's a very innovative thinker because he's so quick to cite others. But as I show in the book, his citing others is a little bit of a deflection from people being able to see how much he does actually contribute himself uh, in, in his own teaching. You know, um, looking at the beginning of his life at um, Buck, Bucknell, is it Buck, Bucknell? Yes, that's right. Bucknell for undergrad, yes. Um, and just his formation there realizing that he's always wanted to debate people who were not believers who were um agnostics atheists nominal christians who really hadn't thought this has been his hallmark where did he get that from well according to his sister sharon she's the only person who is still in the family uh is still alive from his immediate family uh he got that from arguing with his mother (laughs) growing (laughs) up And in fact, his father was banned from his mother from fighting in World War II. She was a pacifist. And so some of that actually carried down into Tim and his brother. They were told that they could not fight. Well, they were often in kind of difficult situations as young boys, and um, they were were picked on a little bit. Tim's very large. Most people don't realize how big he is, how tall he is, but also has always been very highly intelligent, which made him quite a target, but he wasn't allowed by his mother to fight back. And so he developed an ability to try to argue himself out of these situations. And his mother was pretty, um, I think people reading the book can see she was pretty overbearing. And so he spent a lot of time arguing with his mother. In fact, Sharon said to me, we never would have been able to watch Star Trek if it weren't for my brother (laughs) arguing arguing with, with, with our mom. And then, yeah, by the time he gets to Bucknell, Lauren, he's actually the one arguing with the Christians. He's the one who's arguing all these things through with these members of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Mm. And as soon as he becomes a Christian at the end of his sophomore year, it really flips. And all of a sudden, this is the time of kind of the pinnacle of Vietnam protests. Yeah, yeah. He's out there. He's at the book table. He's out there at the, the student sit-ins. And he's arguing with people about Jesus. He's reading the books. He's talking to them. And not just arguing. I mean, he's, he's just sharing the gospel with them, sharing the good news, shining that light of Christ with them. And so it was pretty early on. He's always somebody who has taken ideas very seriously and been very willing to engage with people who disagree with him. And, you know, that's such a wonderful part of his personality because he doesn't react. He just talks. He just explains. One of the things that um, happened on Bucknell, as many college campuses, is after the Kent State killings. And they had a lot of student protests and a lot of, they couldn't go to classes and they were, they had the space in the square where they were protesting or arguing or 
um, and everybody had sort of a voice, and they were wondering how to be involved with that, and they, they made a sign, the InterVarsity group made a sign, and they were just standing by the sign, to, waiting for someone to engage them, and the sign said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And he used that in a sermon, and I went like, wow, what a way to engage a group of very angry college students, you know? Yeah, that's such a, I, I think that's such a good summary of Tim Keller's whole ministry <laughs> right there. He's bringing together the head and the heart at the same time. That's just how, it's how he's wired. It's his own life. Um, he's, you, you might see somebody who's really strong in the intellect, somebody who really likes to debate the historical evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you turn right around and there's somebody else who wants to talk to you about the the powerful transformation of the heart that comes when we believe and accept by by grace uh, through faith this this amazing gift from God. But Tim does both. Those things have always been important to him. And you can add from the head to the heart, also the hands. Um, As many people, especially in New York, know that this diaconate ministry, this service ministry has always been, it's actually an important part of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, helping, helping the poor especially. But a lot of people don't know that Tim's intellectual work, his academic work, was in that kind of ministry. That was what he contributed himself. And so he's always been somebody who has that holistic approach, the head, the heart, and the hands, bringing them all together. I know some of the main influences because he's talked about them in sermons. And, you know, I listen to him and I have, you know, I've got the, you know, the little flash drive with the 1500 sermons on it. Plus, um, <laughs> I've got the Gospel Coalition in, in, app on my phone. Um, yeah. So... Who were some of his main influences um, yeah. that people should know about? Well, no doubt you've got to start with a couple. One of them is C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Um, and C.S. Lewis, Tim says in his first best-selling book, The Reason for God, that all of his other influences came from his number one influence, and that was and is his wife, Kathy. Um, Kathy, a lot of people just don't know her. She's very different personality wise mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Tim. She's very dynamic. She's very to the point, I think would be a nice way to put it. And she was that way even as a child, even as a preteen. And so she was one of the last people to ever correspond with C.S. Lewis. Mm. And as a teenager, she even went to Oxford to be able to visit his his home and to talk with his brother after he had died in 1963. So Kathy's always been kind of that, that lead influence since they were best friends, Tim and Kathy at Gordon-Conwell in seminary. And then even as, a, as an undergraduate through her sister, who studied with Tim at Bucknell, um, she told him about C.S. Lewis. You got to read these Narnia books. You have to read these Narnia books. And then another person that she helped to introduce him to within the broader framework of Reformed theology is Jonathan Edwards, that uh, colonial American theologian and revivalist. So those are really the top two. You could, I mean, we could talk forever about this, but the other main one is, is a man by the name of Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney was Tim's only personal mentor. And I really had a hard time, Lauren, figuring out where to put him <laughs> chronologically in the book because he's the only person who knows Tim, other than Kathy, 
as an undergraduate Mm -hmm. and then as a graduate student he delivers these amazing lectures at gordon conwell he was the president of westminster seminary in philadelphia but he went up to boston gave these amazing lectures that people are listening to for the first time since 1973 uh thanks to gordon conwell through this book and then he's also then he's he's instrumental in helping tim with maybe his most famous message on the prodigal son the two sons yes. of luke 15 but then also he and tim are teaching in the 2000s at the end of Clowney's life on how to preach in our postmodern world through a form theological seminary in orlando and so so Clowney is that one personal mentor who extends almost his entire life sees him all the way from a, a shy brand new christian undergraduate at bucknell all the way through somebody who was becoming a world famous preacher in new york city yeah the other influences, though, there are two women besides Kathy yes. that mm-hmm. have been a big part of that he's mentioned in sermons is Barbara Boyd is a Bible teacher yeah. and Elizabeth Elliot. And I yeah. actually um, interviewed Elizabeth Elliot's daughter um, here yes. on Lighthouse Faith podcast. And that's an amazing story in itself. But I remember Tim quoting Barbara Boyd, and I'm learning much more about her in this book, but I think, I want to read this because I think this was so powerful to me that it just made me just jaw-dropping, what she said, and this is, I guess we're talking about the 1970s, right? Would be Mm -hmm. probably the 1970s? Yeah, that's right. 60s and 70s, yeah, that would, Tim would have, 1970s, so yeah, summer of 1970s. And this, this, this is what starts to make you think about the world and what this world is. Here's, here's the quote. She says, if the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe. And the Bible says in Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. She said, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. Then she looked and smiled and said, do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? (laughs) That absolutely blew me away because that was the conversation about is God a concept to you or is he a living reality? Hmm. And that's why it became so different. Um, you know, we talk about worldviews. Um, worldviews are not something you see, but something you see through. Yeah. And so having a biblical worldview means now you have to see the world through the eyes of the Bible. And I think, and that's what his gift is, you know? Yeah, it is. And, and um, you know, Barbara Boyd was such a fundamental figure in just helping him to understand the basics of reading the Bible. And another thing that she did for him that was so powerful is she'd take a group of, of college students and she'd give them, say, three minutes and say, here's a, here's a verse or here's a paragraph from Scripture, and I want you to just closely observe it, make note of everything that you can. And after about two minutes, the students would say, well, I've kind of figured that out. I'm going to twiddle my <laughs> thumbs here for another minute. And at the end of those three minutes, she'd say, okay, now you have 30 minutes to do it. And the students would just say, what are you talking about? How can I, how can I possibly find anything more in right. this passage than I found in two minutes? And then Lauren, at the end of 30 minutes, they're just blown away by everything they found. And that is certainly the gift that Tim has given us is in the same way through his study of the text, 
we look at a passage when he when he reads it first and we say well that's an interesting passage i've heard that before um i wonder what he's going to say and then 30 minutes later 35 minutes later we're thinking well, I didn't see all of that at first. <laughs> I didn't know all of that was there. Wow. And Tim would often has often said, Lauren, that at the beginning of a of a sermon, he's hoping that everybody's taking notes. But if people are still taking notes at the end, then something's gone horribly wrong. Wow. Because he wants he wants you to switch from the head to the heart. He wants you to commit that to memory for that to be a sermon that you don't go back through your dusty files years later and, and look over in you know in pen that you scribble down. He wants you to remember it in your heart. So that's something that you live as a daily reality. So I think you've you've captured you've captured him perfectly in your description. Wow. Uh, we're gonna take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Colin Hansen talking about Uh, Dr. Tim Keller. We'll be right back. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Colin Hansen. He is the vice president of content and editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. It's a ministry that Tim Keller created um, post his you know, senior pastorship at Redeemer and creating Redeemer. But Redeemer, it's very interesting. Um, Redeemer was actually created, uh, started in 1989. Is that right? That's right, yes. And in 1987, there was this incredible story in New York about the Kitty Genovese murder. And the story goes that 20 New Yorkers supposedly watched the brutal murder. It was late at night. She came home and the assailant you know, beat her, and then she cried out, lights went on, and he left when the lights went on, and then nobody came down, so he came back and finished the murder. Now, the story has either been debunked or something, but anyway, it's interesting because that's the state of New York in 1987. Why start a church (laughs) in a place like that? (laughs) Well, because it sounds like folks who need Jesus. (laughs) Um, It's really fascinating, Lauren, for me to be able to go back and look at a lot of the history of New York. A lot of people don't remember that the largest revival in the history of the United States happened in New York. It started in New York, 1857-58 prayer meeting revival. North mm. Dutch Church, Jeremiah Landfear spread as the businessmen's prayer, uh, or prayer meeting revival around the country. Just massive, right on the right at the beginning, uh, right, right a couple years before the beginning of the Civil War. And then, so into the early 20th century, one one observer had noted that about 25 percent of people living on the Upper East Side were regular church-going evangelicals. Mm. That's the early 20th century. 25%. Well, yeah, 25%. Wow. Well, as you know, Upper East Side has been really in many ways the most prominent location historically and, and with the current building campaign as well in New York City. But by the time of World War II and certainly in the aftermath of World War II, it was nothing like that. When I talk to people... Um, evangelical Christians in Manhattan. Of course, this is not the case with the boroughs, other boroughs, but in Manhattan specifically, in the 1970s and 1980s, they would say, Colin, we knew of about four evangelical churches in Manhattan Mm. at that time. We didn't feel particularly comfortable bringing our friends to any of them because none of them felt to us authentically like New York. Mm-hmm. So to be thoroughly evangelical, confessional, its theology, evangelistic in its mission, 
but didn't feel but but also felt at the same time contextualized like new york and that's really what redeemer did and i think that's um i mean kathy keller says um that the secret to planting a successful church is figure out where god's going to send a revival and move there a month ahead of time (laughs) (laughs) obviously you can't know that and so tim and kathy are very quick to credit a movement of god that they didn't have anything to do with of why redeemer grew so quickly in manhattan at the same time tim and kathy are nothing if not very deliberate and very gifted also in their own ministry and so that unique combination produced something uh, pretty special that of course um you know continues to this day in many many remarkable ways across the city and and even around the world you know if you see things about redeemer or you hear things in mainstream media they always look at redeemer and say it's a conservative church is conservative um this is where we are kind of i guess in the political world that you know and i think tim would probably balk at that what would you say yeah, he definitely would balk at that. In fact, one of the most common questions I get is, why is Tim Keller a registered Democrat? Well, I try to explain to people local New York politics <laughs> and primary elections and, and one-party government and things like that, but it doesn't really occur to them. But I think anybody who actually knows the city and, and knows the church knows that politically speaking, it is very diverse. Um, right. you, you've got a wide range of, of views there. But in the broader world where to be an evangelical is equated with being a Republican in people's mind, I think that becomes, um, you know, that, that, that it's very confusing to kind of use those terms to categorize New York. In fact, I think, Lauren, the best way to put it is that from the beginning, people have always been confused about Redeemer. The way that people would tell, would talk to me about it is they'd say that uh, Tim would be quoting Woody Allen, he'd be mm-hmm. quoting Madonna, he'd be quoting The Nation, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and people are thinking, I don't understand how to categorize this church, but that's what he was trying to say. He was trying to say Redeemer is not a fundamentalist church, which which has no regard for the culture and is very separatist. But it's not a liberal mainline church either that doesn't have a high regard for the scriptures themselves or historic doctrine. We are neither one. We're in the middle of that. And so his big mission was to create that middle space for people to believe the Bible, but also to be part of that mainstream culture uh, in New York City in in all sorts of different uh, jobs, which, as you know full well, is is the case with the people you know, attending. One of the things that uh, he did in the beginning of the church, which I think is very interesting for you New Yorkers, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why the church grew so much, is because even after the church service, he would do a Q&A with anybody yeah. who wanted to ha- ask a question. I mean, this yeah. is uh, this is unheard of. Yeah. Well, it's unheard of in churches, but the interesting thing is, is in my book talks about where he got the idea. He got the idea really starting with Francis Schaeffer's Labrie in Switzerland. And then through that, R.C. Sproul started Ligonier Valley Study Center in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. And he would have something called Gabfest, where you could just talk, ask any question you wanted. Well, Tim was so inspired by this that he, when he went to Hopewell, Virginia, he did his own Gabfest. He'd show up, he'd already have preached 
preached a Sunday morning service, a Sunday evening service with a different message. And then for all hours that night, until Kathy came down in her nightgown and told everybody to go home, <laughs> he would just answer whatever question anybody had. And if you didn't know what question to ask, Lauren, he had a hundred pre-prepared <laughs> you could wow. choose from wow. in there. And so, yes, then when he got to New York, that's exactly what he did. He would he would he would answer these questions, um, and then Kathy would often be sitting in the front row, and she'd pipe up if she thought he had the wrong answer, if she wanted to add <laughs> something to it. And yeah, that that openness, that, the sense in which if you are a skeptic, if you are a doubter of religion, you are welcome here. You can ask your questions, and we will do our best to be able to answer them. That's definitely the way Tim has has always been, and, and you're right, something that has deeply marked the the character of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And the way he debates is really not debating with rancor. I mean, it really is this um, seeing the image of God in another person and helping them understand um, the grace of, of Christ. You know, uh, you know, Redeemer was actually founded that, as I learned from the press release here, that it's called the Land of Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, I love that. So, one of the great privileges uh, through the pandemic, I, I couldn't, I couldn't travel a lot to do much research for this book, but. I was able to do a lot of interviews over Zoom and quickly that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And so I did a bunch of them with the earliest members of Redeemer from the 1980s and 1990s. Met a number of remarkable people such as Steve Preston, who went on to be Secretary for Housing and Urban Development under President Bush, now CEO of Goodwill. Um, I just met a lot of people like that from those early years. And the thing they told me was, Redeemer at that time, yes, it was amazing to hear Tim's preaching, but the community was even just as special. And they described it as the land of yes. If you wanted to do something, you could go ahead and do it. (laughs) You wanted an all-night prayer meeting during the first Gulf War? Do it. Go ahead and do it. And Tim didn't have to be involved. I did clarify that later on with the church growing like crazy and out of control of of Tim's managerial skills, it did become the land of oh no. But at first, (laughs) it was certainly the the land of yes. It was a a very special time for those people there at the beginning. Um, You know, one of the things that happened very, very, very um, devastating in, of course, was uh, the 9-11. And right. how Redeemer was positioned during 9-11. And I would imagine that a lot of people joined the church or found the church or what happened right. on 9-11. Yeah, well, um, 9-11 did not hit Redeemer directly as it did some other places. There were not a lot of members who were killed. But of course, so many members living downtown, living in that in that trauma zone. I talked to some of them, Christina Stanton, uh, who, who's Fujimura. been on who's been on Lighthouse Faith in her book exactly. about uh, the, the the Twin Towers. I mean, she exactly has a yeah, incredible so story. It is an incredible story. In fact, uh, really a story of, of of she and her husband coming to faith, um, you know, through that process. And and so yes, many people they that the the response coming to church that Sunday was so overwhelming that Redeemer had to immediately immediately add another service unprompted. And of all the churches in New York City, Redeemer appears to be the place where the most number of people we're talking maybe 800 members, something like that. I can't recall the exact number, Mm -hmm. but hundreds of members stuck with the church. It was also money that poured in from around the world, about a million dollars that came in unsolicited for relief funds. Mm. Um, But that was a 
that was more difficult of a time than I think many people on the outside probably grasped about it. So on the positive side, many people looked back on that time and said, we believe that Redeemer's message, that for the sake of loving the city and loving our neighbors, we need to stay and be a part of the city's recovery, was actually really key in helping to hold the city together. At the same time, that trauma did not go away quickly. Um, the administration was overwhelmed with the need, the, the counseling needs, the financial needs. Mm. Tim actually had thyroid cancer. Kathy was still dealing with Crohn's disease. And I think it's as close as Tim ever came to thinking that he just couldn't do it anymore wow. in ministry. It was a difficult time. Um, but Redeemer was really woven into the fabric of the entire recovery on the five-year anniversary uh, for the memorial service of the families that was held downtown. Uh, Tim Keller was the one who was invited to, to preach there along with President Bush. And so it was um, certainly a, a turning point in many ways. It was a, it was a very difficult, difficult time. This is something I actually didn't know about the beginning of the church, that when he started it, he deliberately avoided publicizing the church, yeah. especially to other Christians. Why? Right. <laughs> well, first, I think there just weren't many Christians <laughs> there to, pub to publicize it from. I mean, I think they wanted good relationships with the other Christians there. Uh, but beyond that, the mission was very clear. We want that, that the church wanted to reach people who were not currently in a church, people who were far away from God one way or another, people who might describe themselves as having no religion, which was 30% of Manhattan at the time mm. said no religion. Um, and uh, and so they, they wanted to reach those people. That was the mission. And I think the thought was that it's easier for a church to grow when they say, hey, new church in town, we're not like any of the other churches, come check us out. And we've seen a number of churches do that in New York City, but they're only able to do that in New York City now. <laughs> they couldn't have done that in the 1980s because <laughs> there just were not enough Christians to populate any sort of cool, young, new <laughs> movement there. So they really were going to have to reach people who are far from, far from Christ. And thankfully, there were a number of other ministries there, like executive ministries, uh, leaders like Nancy um, DeMoss, at the time mm -hmm. and ministry of uh, crew formerly campus crusade for christ was very active in the area and so it was key for for redeemer to partner with those ministries and to be a good neighbor uh to those other christians in new york well i want to thank you um the book is uh called timothy keller his spiritual and intellectual formation and hopefully it won't be um a book that you know people will be picking up because he's no longer with us but right. and we we just give our prayers for his um his treatment for pancreatic cancer um I would welcome people going online. They should read, hear some of his sermons because um, I have turned so many people on to Timothy Keller's sermons <laughs> and uh, people who have never, ever heard a sermon that just reaches their intellect and their emotions all at the same time. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's, uh, if people go to timothykellerbook.com, they'll find a lot of the bonus material, including some of the most famous sermons, The Girl Nobody Wanted, a September 11th address, uh, things like the, the September 16th address there, uh, sermon, but they can find those at timothykellerbook.com. You know, I have to tell you, the first time I, I, I found out about Timothy Keller, I was actually going to another church, and somebody that I happened to sit next to, uh, we stuck up a conversation after church. And he told me about this church called 
Redeemer. And the very next Sunday, he handed me a CD of a Tim Keller sermon. <laughs> and not often do I listen to sermons like that. And But I listened to the sermon and I was blown away and listened to it like two more times in a row because I could not <laughs> just, I was trying to grasp all the information that was being presented. And then I just started getting the sermons online. And then I realized, you know, the church is in New York. I could go to the church. <laughs> then right. I started going. So... I have never, I mean, and he's brave too, because I have never heard a preacher talk about the dangers of premarital sex in New York to an audience (laughs) of like under 35 year olds. Well, just real quick there, Lauren, people can cite all kinds of controversial issues that they want, but early in the church's history, you identified the single most controversial topic, the one that people could not imagine anybody would ever preach against. In fact, when media would come by, they would say, wow, can you imagine this place if they were telling people not to have sex before marriage? And Kathy looked and was like, we do teach people that (laughs) it was just unthinkable and so we don't we don't quite think about that these days with all the other controversial issues but redeemer's not been shy to to teach biblical truth and and see people transformed in the process wow all right well get the book listen to the sermons colin thank you so much um uh, for being here it's been a wonderful conversation thanks lauren Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.